Thursday, February 21st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, it's a packed house today. From Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. From Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers. And from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. What's up, guys? Howdy. To the left of me and investors to the right I know. It's jam-packed. We're going to talk beer. We're going to talk cars. We're going to start with big retail. Walmart's fourth quarter earnings came in higher than expected. They also raised their annual dividend 18%. Maybe not a surprise, Charlie, that shares are up uh, around 3% this morning. This seems like that's kind of a really strong quarter for them. I'm still back on the beer and cars. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to the beer and cars. We'll get there, okay, as long as you promise. (laughs) It's actually a pretty good year for Walmart, like you said. And uh, coming out of the financial crisis, Walmart had a couple rough years where their comps were just down, I think, eight quarters in a row. Yeah. Uh, Things are a lot better for them. Uh, Their full-year sales were up 5%, profits up 10%. Like you mentioned, they raised the dividend. And for the first time in a long time, we can say that their domestic and their foreign operations did quite well. Uh, That said, their outlook for this quarter is weak. I think uh, there's a lot of hubbub around that internal memo that got leaked saying February is complete catastrophe. (laughs) Uh, And sales are going to be flat in Q1, but they are still sticking with 6% earnings growth for the current year. Uh, so all in all, I think Walmart's doing quite well, and there's a reason their stock has uh, come up in the last year. Um, uh, Joe, one of the analysts on CNBC this morning uh, from Wells Fargo, um, in referring to Walmart, he said, it's a big boat, and it doesn't go that fast. Um, I think if you're an investor, that's that's probably a, a pretty apt image, because, I mean, this is the world's largest retailer, and while it's a great quarter, and, and to Charlie's point, a great year, um, if you're an investor, you can't let your expectations go crazy on this stock. No. What was a little disconcerting to me was that traffic is not moving in the right direction for them, despite investing in pricing, which is code for aggressively competing on price, which Walmart has always done. But right. that is a little bit troubling to me. Another thing I'd be curious to know, and maybe this comes out in the next uh, 10K filing, but some online sales data would be nice. It's been a while since they've updated anyone on um, yeah, Charlie. Along with the online, uh, the question around online sales, it seemed like part of the struggle over the last few years, maybe not the last twelve months, but maybe say the the two or three years prior to that, it seemed like Walmart was a company that was almost sort of fishing around for a new strategy. It seemed like they, you know, at, at one point their strategy was to streamline their offerings. That didn't work. Then they went back to like, no, 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 we're going to be the place where you can you can get just about anything you want. Regardless of the numbers on the balance sheet, do you feel like the management is sort of in lockstep on like, okay, we know what the path forward is from a strategy standpoint? I think they do, and I think they're going to do what Joe is saying is aggressive pricing. I mean, when have they not been aggressive on price? That's their whole MO. And, you know, despite their comments about mounting economic concerns out of consumers and small businesses, uh, they say they are taking share. And so Walmart's core customer is struggling, but Walmart is keeping a, a better portion of their spending than some of their competitors like the dollar stores or Target are. And I think Walmart is well positioned for what could be a tough economy. Uh, they did, you know, mention that uh, the payroll tax expiration and delayed tax refunds was hurting them, but that's going to hurt all retailers and all consumer spending. And I think Walmart, with its value proposition, will weather that a bit better than some of the retail peers. So even though the stock is within a few dollars of uh, a 52-week high, you still kind of like the stock, it sounds like. Uh, it might be a little pricey for me here, but I think if you have 
you know, like you're saying, reasonable expectations. This is going to be a mid-single-digit grower. You do get a nice dividend off of the stock. Yeah. Uh, it's the kind of stock I think you can own and forget about for a while. But I would look for it a little bit cheaper than where it's at right James now. James Early must be doing handsprings. You know, any t- any, <laughs> right. you know, anytime a company the size of Walmart raises their annual dividend 18 percent. Well, mean, once they announced all the organic fruit and vegetables last year, James uh, is in. He's having a party. You think he's actually buying that from there, though? I don't know. I mean, no. I think- Probably still a little skepticism in his. Uh, no, but I, 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 in all seriousness, I'm sure he appreciates the fact that they're going in that direction. They're trying that they're yeah, at least they, they're yeah. they're at least making that offer yeah. to customers. Boston Beer Company's fourth quarter profits fell five percent, uh, and gross margins narrowed by more than four percentage points. Jason, uh, stock is only down slightly. Uh, maybe not that bad when you consider. Not a particularly great quarter. No, I mean, it was a decent quarter, and there's some good and some bad to take away, but it's not surprising at all to see them getting squeezed a little bit by costs. I mean, everything from labor costs to ingredients, uh, you know, hops and, and barley, those those are commodity goods. They can get a, little bit, uh, <laughs> get a little bit pricey at times. And so, you know, that's that's something that's relatively common. And I think that really... One thing we like about Boston Beer here at the Fool, so it's a recommendation in Stock Advisor, is that management does such a good job, really, of kind of dealing with it. Uh, they have this Freshest Beer program, which, while admittedly they didn't see, they didn't reach their goal for the Freshest Beer program. I think of rolling it out to to as many distributors as they care uh, to roll it out to. It's still something that's gaining traction and. And it's working to a degree. I mean, depletions are up, and depletions continue to grow. And that's just the sales from the distributors to the retailers. So people are buying the beer. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at Sam Adams, though, and Boston Beers to kind of how it's evolved over the years. Because it's, you know, Mac and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. It's tough to look at, at Boston Beer and Samuel Adams and think of it as a craft brew anymore. Because, I mean, they, they brew over 50 kinds of, of you know, beers now. And and it's it's and relatively yet that, that is their category. It is it is admittedly it's it's relatively mainstream though, and and I like their new alchemy and science uh, little subsidiary there. It's like a new uh, what was it Magic Hat that that beer that the guys that founded Magic Hat now uh, because Magic Hat was uh, was sold and so the guys from Magic Hat essentially got with uh, Cook from Samuel Adams and they. Uh, form this new little subsidiary called Alchemy and Science. And it's essentially a new way for them to develop new craft brews. So it's kind of like getting back to their roots where Samuel Adams maybe was 20, 20 years ago or so. And they're seeing sort of new craft brews develop from this. And I think the question we always had about Samuel Adams is once it reached that point of where it was more mainstream, where was the growth going to come from? Because at that point then, competing with the, distribu- uh, the distribution models of, of the bigger players like you know Anheuser-Busch and Bev and whatnot become very difficult. So this, this Alchemy and Science... Uh, Endeavor at least offers another avenue, possibly for growth, if they can brew uh, some tasty beers that consumers want to buy. Uh, I approve. I do as well, <laughs> and I will certainly go out there and give it. You know, I I will go ahead and give it a test run myself. But I also thought it was interesting. They announced a they're they're gonna at least look into start starting to can their beer. Uh, not just, but you know, I mean, as, as it seems now, you get Samuel Adams in bottles. <laughs> I support this Do in you? such okay, a so big way. I'm a little, I'm a little bit torn here because it's like I'm, Samuel Adams is, is one of my favorite beers. I mean, it's a uh, Boston Lager is just a go to. Uh, I've always been a bit of a snob in that regard, and that I kind of look at it and think it's really now it's going to be in a can. But apparently, it's not just like a Bud Light can. They're trying to sort of perfect the canning process, and it, it makes me kind of think of that Guinness Stout little there is CO2 a canning can renaissance in, in the craft beer. You're space. right, yeah. and, and I think for a long time people looked at canned beer and thought, well, that's sort of a, a grade below. It's you know sort of. Maybe Smokey and the Bandit back in the days when you're trying to smuggle all that Coors <laughs> yeah. Light because he's thirsty, dummy. But if they can pull that off 
and and really really make that work, then I think they're going to open it potentially to more to more consumers. Joe, I love the can. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> but to the you know to oh. one of the points Jason was hitting on it, and I'm not a beer drinker, but it seems like. Uh, you know, at at one end, you've got the Ambev, SAB, Miller, Grupo, Modelo. You've got the mass market, mass produced beers. Yeah. And then at the other end, you've got, I mean, right here in Alexandria, you've got Port City. You've got all of these. You've got a slew of You've got a tiny whole slew brewers. of tiny brewers. And in the middle is Sam Adams, which is technically a craft brew, but I think it is the largest or the second largest craft brewer in America. And in that regard, are they now sort of... Um, in some ways, between a rock and a hard place in terms of their brand positioning? Um, I wouldn't say that, but they're definitely not in a a sweet spot necessarily. You know, you, you look at the larger brewers, I appreciate kind of the Skunk Works projects that they're doing, but it's not as though that, uh, you know, Budweiser um, you know, and their parent company can't go out and partner with smaller brewers right. and distribute through their massive network and their low-cost facilities, which they are doing, and it's very smart, most of coolers. Molson Core is doing the same thing. Also, you've got, you know, a million small brewers out there. I mean, the, the beer renaissance that's gone on is incredible, and it's so difficult to stand out right now. It goes beyond, like, microbrewery into, like, nanobrewery. I mean, when you have, like, a twenty to $30,000 operation you set up in your garage. You know, or Charlie's maybe, Closet. Maybe, yes. Well, possibly. Do you brew your own beer? I have in the past, not currently. I did it in college. It's a lot of work. For, it is a lot of work, but we did it in college for a number of years, and, and it certainly – Paid dividends for for a number of months, I guess at the most. It didn't last very long. Like the product. I want to give a shout out to Twenty First Amendment. They're one of the big brewers, not really big, but one of the few that actually can beer. And they do a black IPA back in black. Uh, fantastic, fantastic. Where are they based? I don't know. How did you come across the beer? They sell in DC. It's delicious. You can get it at Whole Foods. Mm. Back in black. I've 21st Amendment. Let's make a note of that. Um, just to wrap up on the stock, uh, obviously a, a, a minuscule pullback today. What do you think of the shares? Right now, the stock is at about 30 times full year 2013 estimates. It's not cheap. Uh, I think they are expecting a little bit more growth through this through this uh, alchemy and science endeavor. I'd probably wait for a pullback, but it's an awesome company. You got to walk the walk, though. I think if you're going to buy shares of Sam uh, of Boston Beer Company, you got to double down on the amount of Samuel Adams you're you consuming. Gotta, you got to pay yourself I mean, first, Chris. That's just good science. Pay yourself first. Um, Tesla's fourth quarter earnings, uh, perhaps best summed up by this headline: Tesla Motors quarterly loss widens as costs rise. Uh, not surprisingly, Joe shares down around ten percent this morning. Uh, kind of a tough quarter. Obviously, Tesla's been in the news quite a bit lately with the whole New York Times review. For those who don't know this, the New York uh, Times uh, had a guy test drive, I guess, the Model S yeah. and uh, gave it a bad review. And what he was not aware of was that all of the data <laughs> from the car and his trip was being tracked by Tesla. And they just – Elon Musk went on his blog and said, actually – um, he's he's not being completely accurate with the notes that he took and and that sort of thing. We have the real data. And anyway, um, where do you think this company is right now? Obviously, not a great day for shareholders. Yeah, it's in a very tight spot where they're dealing with three challenges. One is distribution; they don't really have that. Two is scaling. It's very difficult to start ramping up selling a lot of cars and manufacturing those cars. There's a reason you don't see a lot of upstart car companies. Right. It's for that reason. Uh, 
you know, those are certainly the big challenges. And the third one is just actually getting people excited about buying the cars, which are not cheap. And when you have a review comes out that's negative for that high a price point, it's definitely an issue. And Jason, the the New York Times, uh, I mean, it was a whole back and forth between the Times and Elon Musk. And, and ultimately, where the Times netted out was basically saying, yeah, our guy... Um, he he really didn't take great notes. You know, they 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 sort of backed their reviewer, but but did acknowledge, yeah, this this could have gone uh, better. Uh, but to Joe's point, it just seems like the the underlying challenge for Tesla is even greater than just sort of one bad review. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely facing a lot of headwinds in um, just the the price point of the car first and foremost. I mean, that's that's basically an eighty thousand dollar purchase on a technology that's not necessarily proven fully out. I mean, if you remember, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, whenever, I mean, hybrids faced the same sort of headwinds in convincing consumers that they were reliable. Um, Toyota and Prius obviously have done a terrific job in in sort of solidifying their position in the market and showing us that hybrids really are uh, reliable. And it doesn't help Tesla that you have companies like Ford and GM and Nissan also producing electric cars that are certainly more affordable for the masses. Um, now, with that said, I, I, this is an investment, or yeah, at least a concept I'd love to get fully behind. I mean, as an investment, it is, it's a tricky one. Uh, but I think it's going to take a lot of time to convince consumers that electric cars really are going to be reliable and have a future. It can happen. I think it's just going to take a long time. Yeah, this is a big jockey bet. When you get down to it, you're betting on Elon Musk, who, in fairness, has an amazing track record. He's one of the PayPal mafia guys, so a, a co-founder, one of like 12 co-founders there, but one of the co-founders, people yep. who can hang their hat on that. And SpaceX, who's basically trying to help privatize space, and they've had amazing success there. So a lot of this is faith-based around his skills and track record, which are fantastic so far. Um, but Charlie, when you, uh, you know, when you look at the infrastructure for charging stations, and, and, and this is something we've talked about in the office for a few days now. If you go out and buy a car, whatever the car is, you know, you're never all that far from a gas station. Um, and there's an underlying business for the gas station. So Ford and GM and all these automakers, they don't have to worry about setting up gas stations. There's a whole other business to do that. Tesla is in the position of creating these supercharging stations on their own. So they actually do have to be in the business of not only making the car, but once people get it out on the road, making it easy and available for people to supercharge their stations. And that just seems like it it raises the bar even higher for success. It's a massive undertaking, Chris. Otherwise, you're limiting consumers to using the car within a range around their house. Um, I, I, I do think they are going to have to pull it off. But the thing is, with these supercharging stations, you're on a long road trip, you stop to get gas, it takes you a couple minutes uh, versus, what, 30, 45 minutes for a supercharger? Supercharger is like an hour. That's really drawing out your trip. That's Uh, assuming you're first in line. Right. You're (laughs) not having to wait. God forbid there are two cars in front of you. Right. So if there's increasing popularity, uh, they're going to have to install even more at the current locations. It's a big hurdle for them. It, It is. But I think a lot of it is just psychological. I mean, the reality is, we don't make long trips in our cars that often. Like the overwhelming use case for your car is driving back and forth to work, going to get groceries, taking kids to school. It's not making back and forth trips to your hometown several states over. That is a crucial part and reason for owning a car for sure. Right. And I'd be pretty annoyed if I had to wait 30 minutes to recharge it. But if they can, I don't know, it's a tough psychological barrier to overcome. 
Um, Jason, just to finish up on the stock, um, I, I, you know, I agree completely with uh, with uh, what Joe said in terms of if you're betting on this stock, you're betting almost entirely on Elon Musk. Um, now that the shares are a little bit cheaper today than they were yesterday, uh, what do you what do you think of the shares? So, I mean, I think I think that's right. It's a, it's a jockey bet. I think that if you invest in Tesla, you have to be prepared to wait a very long time for the story to play out. I think there is a significant chance that they will have to raise more capital at some point, either through debt issuance or new shares. Um, it's it's kind of a catch twenty two. If Elon Musk stays, you're concerned. If he leaves, you're if you're even more concerned. If he leaves, and I, right. I just yeah, if he left, I would be very concerned. I think that investors in this stock they just have to realize it is it is a higher risk bet. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, I should mention kind of a bittersweet day for us here at Market Foolery. Um, we've been doing this podcast for just over two years, um, and the sweet part is today's episode uh, will represent our four millionth download. So, wow. so, cool. so thank you uh, to you guys for coming in the studio every day, and thank you to our dozens of listeners for um, for actually downloading hundreds um, of thousands of times a piece. Right, <laughs> and producer slash wrangler Mac, who just yeah. is you know Mac Rear, who makes it on his, a daily basis. He's uh, the constant that people just exactly don't Mac. Uh, Mac is the man behind the glass who who makes daily laps around the office, just growling <laughs> people like, "No, come on, just come in the studio for ten minutes." Uh, but the bitter part is that we are saying goodbye to Joe Mager. Maybe it's not goodbye. Maybe it's, it's see you later. It's see you later. Um, Joe, where are you going? I am moving to Sydney, Australia next week to join Fool Australia. Fool Australia. So, um, <laughs> nice. I will. Uh, I should qualify. I will continue to work with Fool US, keep running inside value, but I'll be based out of Sydney. So, Joe will be down in Sydney with our man Scott Phillips down there. Yep. Um, we've gotten emails from people in, in uh, Australia and uh, certainly in New Zealand. So, um, you know. Yeah, if you're a listener. Shoot us an email at radio at fool.com, and I'd love to meet up when we get down there. If you're on Twitter, you can follow Joe. It's just at Mager, M-A-G-Y-E-R, and and we'll figure out a way to get you back here at some point. It's been a pleasure. It's been our pleasure as well. Joe Mager, Jason Moser, Charlie Travis. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our DJ is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Alright, Mac, you're taking me back to like sixth grade. Yeah. 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 Yeah.